Amen. Today we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, please turn or tap your way to Matthew, chapter 9. If you don't, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen for you. We'd love to uh, give you a copy of the Modern English Translation of the Bible if you don't have one. Just so you can see, we're a people who believe that the Bible is actually God's Word, that it's an accurate uh, record of what Jesus did and the life that He lived. And, and we want you to, to read it with us to see why we're teaching this stuff, kind of where we see it coming from. And if you've been with us for this series, we've been talking about the real Jesus, meaning we're going back to one of these original documents, one of these documents written by a guy that followed Jesus. Today, we're actually going to learn about that guy But the reason that we're going back to these things, we want to see who Jesus really is. And as we're going through these stories, you're going to kind of start to see some both repetition and variation. It's sort of variations on a theme. There is a theme, but that theme continues to get filled out with these little extras, these little variations. It is clear that the Bible is saying over and over again in these Gospels that Jesus is authoritative. And if you kind of walk the path with the gospel reader, like if you can imagine yourself finding this in a field and just reading along, you can sort of slowly see that it doesn't just assume authority in this Jesus, but it continues to expand that out and say he's not just an authoritative teacher, authoritative philosopher, authoritative moral standard, but that he's authoritative in bigger and bigger and bigger ways such that you have to start asking some real questions about who he even is. Authoritative. But also that this Jesus is loving. Loving in a surprising way. Loving in a passionate way. Loving in a way that you don't expect authority to sort of intersect with. And yet, in this Jesus, we see both of them put together. In the passages today, you're going to see those same things kind of put together and and have kind of some new angles put on both of those concepts. But there's a possibility that you'll hear some of the same words that we've been saying and think, okay, I got this. And I don't know what he's talking about. Here we go. And you can kind of shunt some of this to the side. But I'm telling you what Matthew is telling you. And if I'm saying it again, it's because Matthew is saying it again. And if Matthew's saying it again, I think it's because there's something that you need to hear here. Uh, last night, we had some friends over, super fun. And my diligent, wonderful wife, you know, we, we cook the food, we have the people, we clean up, we put the kids to bed. And after all that's done, she starts baking a cake for my nephew. Super kind. But then I'm worn out, it's kind of getting long. I lay down on the couch and start to fall asleep. She finishes making her cake, and she's cleaning the cake pans and accidentally drops one of the cake pans on our tile floor. I was asleep, you know, five yards away on the couch. The sound, the crashing gong-like sound of that cake pan hitting the tile jumped me right up. And I still can feel the adrenaline from that moment to go from totally unconscious to Attack mode, you know, like I'm ready to defend myself in honor. Whatever is happening, here we go. That quickly, and to go from a sleep where you don't have the ability to think about what's happening, you just go all the way to red level, was uh, intense. That's what a gong can do. That's what a gong can kind of shatter you out of. It was like a cartoon where they hit it, and then, you know, the character shakes with the vibration and then, like, moves along the way. It was awful. And, can I say what I'm hoping will happen today. 
If you say that you believe what the Bible says, if you say that you're one of his followers, meaning that you understand something about what this gospel means and that you've accepted it, you've painted that name on you, you should have a bigger reaction than you do if we just look at everybody's lives. Not to be judgmental, but if you compare us to the first couple of chapters of the book of Acts, we don't seem to match up. It's as though we believe this stuff, but the volume's just low. It's, it's having an impact, but the impact isn't really hitting as hard as you kind of think it should. So what I think is happening as Matthew continues to tell us some of these same things is that he's, he's ringing a gong. He's trying to shatter awake some of the stuff that has sort of fallen asleep. Let's read it in, in that spirit. Let's try to have this happen to us. Like I said earlier, this isn't so much a thinker as it is something that's got to go down deeper. It says in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. If you remember last week, he went to the Gerardines and he cast out some demons and it was a hubbub. It was a big to-do. And the people there begged that he would leave their region. So now we're seeing that he got into a boat and he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the guy rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Are you seeing some of the same words? Jesus has got authority. And he's got authority to heal and to forgive sins, which has got all of these implications. So I want to like take a second to let some of this hit for us. There's a sort of a strange connection in this passage between the guy's sins and the fact that he's a paralytic. And I think that the, the original readers and that us as modern readers kind of have something to sort of help each other with in this passage. One, I think original readers would have had a much tighter connection between your spiritual um, being and your physical being. They would have seen those as both legitimate and united. And so when they think about the moral impurity that you might have before a holy God, they immediately, of course, connect that to your physical situation. And of course, that gets a little nasty. We could benefit from that because I think as moderns, we sort of just imagine ourselves as as physical. I mean, maybe you give yourself some sort of other remainder that is, you know, something beyond the physical. But in general, we just kind of think of things that can be prodded by doctors, like that we're just physical. Well, we're not. It makes sense that what happens to our, our heart and our soul, what we think about and understand, affects us physically. We can learn that from the ancients. Now, they could probably take a step back and say that it's, it's not always the case that your sin as an individual has led to your suffering as an individual. 
That's where we might be able to push back a little bit. Otherwise, it would get a little weird when we go around and do prayer requests at community group and you would say, well, you know, can you please pray? I've got some stuff that came up on a scan. I'm I'm a little bit nervous about this thing that I may have. And everybody in the room would say, oh, yeah, we're going to pray. But also, what'd you do? (laughs) I mean, thanks for the prayer request. We'll pray for you maybe make some soup or whatever. But what'd you do? You know, like press for a confession. I don't think that the Bible gives us warrant to make that close of a connection. The Bible is clear that the fall, meaning the original sin of the original parents of humanity, when we broke faith with God, allowed in the brokenness that we see in the world. And that brokenness is moral and relational, but that brokenness is also physical. It's a thing that has pervaded in this world. And it's not really connected one-to-one with somebody's individual sin. And yet, I think... That, that, that pain that we see when we think about the physical brokenness of the world, we also don't want to just disregard. You know, there's, there's also a picture that's taking place here of a person who is paralyzed, receiving forgiveness and then walking home. There's a picture that's poetic there. Jesus is not saying that this guy is paralyzed because he was rude to his mother. He's not making a tight connection between his physical state and his spiritual state. And yet, the author of this text is clear that this guy came in paralyzed, was forgiven, and went home walking. There's pain that you experience that's a good thing. I want you to understand that I think what Jesus is kind of leading you to here is that, that the, the pain that's in your life, and I mean this more emotionally, is there to tell you that there's something wrong in your life. It's something that's kind of a, a good thing because it's, it's alerting you to something that needs to be fixed. I think we can all agree that physical pain is unpleasant, and yet it would be much scarier not to be able to feel it. Wouldn't it be awful if the only way to know you were injured was to be able to physically see that something wasn't working? I love my younger brother. He's not here this morning, so I'll tell this story. He was snowboarding, and he hit just a weird patch of ice, just all of a sudden, you know, powder to like rock. And it it flipped his board, and he landed on his arm, and it cracked it. He broke the bone totally right there. And now he has a functioning pain receptor. So he understood by pain that something was wrong. But he also could physically see something was wrong because when they laid him down, he tried to lift up his arm. Well, if your bone is all the way broken and you try to lift up your arm, you just get a little wingy. You just get a little, a little piece that comes up and the rest sort of just flutters. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> How awful would it be if the only way we could know that something was wrong is if it got that bad that we could visually see that something was wrong? It's We should be thankful that we have all the pain that leads up to something like that, right? Okay, well, in your life, God has given painful emotions that work the same way. They're good because they're telling you that something's wrong. If it's something outside of yourself, you're sad because something has happened to another person and you weep for that person, that's a good thing. But 
here's what I'm bringing up. I think many of us live, and this is part of the muting that takes place in our life, part of the volume decrease, part of the unmatched response between gospel and the way that we actually live. We are, we're muting ourselves in order to not feel some of the painful emotions that are present in your world. Biblical counseling, you start meeting with somebody. You want them to try and get better at articulating what they're feeling. Just like a doctor might ask, okay, where are you hurting? My knee. Okay, well, let's think about knee problems. If you start talking to somebody and you have a lot of fear, okay, let's start thinking about fear problems. You got a lot of anxiety. You got a lot of anger. You got a lot of bitterness. Oh, okay. Well, those are different things. They're telling us different things. They're going to track down different things based on those different emotions. My experience has been personally and with people I talk to that most people don't do a really good job at articulating what they're feeling. In fact, one of the most helpful biblical counseling tools that I have is just a big list of emotions. It's as though you're handing somebody a, a picture of their body and saying, what hurts? And they're pointing to an elbow or something because they just they don't have a word for it. Yeah, you kind of, it takes a second to say, I feel bad. Okay, bad. Can we go further? <laughs> Can we get any more detailed than bad? Well, is it a bad sad? Is it a bad angry? Is it a bad scared? Is it a bad anxious? Is it a bad hungry? You know, what, what does bad mean? And you, you slowly start to try and get better at speaking it. But the fact that you're not already articulate in what your painful emotions are, I think is evidence that you've done a a pretty thorough job of just trying to mute those things. <laughs> you tried to not feel them, to not see them for a long time with pretty desperate measures. And now when you go back to try to look, you've kind of broken that piece of you. It takes a minute to clean off that glass and see through it again. What Jesus has come to do is to alleviate that pain. So you kind of need to feel it. Who are you? What are you? Why are you hurting the way that you're hurting? Where are you paralyzed? See, Jesus, when he healed this guy, he first forgave this guy. Because his biggest problem wasn't his physical situation. His biggest problem was his spiritual situation. Jesus makes that clear. The objection that comes is, does he have the authority to forgive sin? And then he ver verifies it. He validates his authority to forgive sin by healing the guy physically. Now, again, that doesn't always compute for us, but just see that it does in the text. Jesus makes it clear that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Jesus said, if then, bada bing, you think I don't have forgiveness to forgive sin? Well, then how do I have the authority? How do I have the power of God to heal this person? Good question. <laughs> The people seem to think so. It says in verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and the glorified God who had given Jesus such authority. They don't question whether or not he had authority anymore. They see and now glorify God that Jesus has such authority. He has the authority to forgive your sin. And as we said when we preached through Psalm 51, David is praying, and he's praying to God, and he's done awful things to people. He's done awful things to two specific people, and he's done awful things to this nation that he leads. Awful, awful, awful things. And yet, he says in verse 4 of Psalm 51, Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
the concept of sin is that it's against God. It's His law that you're breaking. So when you sin, you need forgiveness from God. Now, you need forgiveness from these people that you've broken faith with as well. But you need forgiveness from God. When Jesus says that He forgives this guy's sin, He's saying that He is God. That's why all the scribes that are standing around there went, blasphemy. Yeah. He's saying He is God, but, but understand what He's offering you as God. He is offering to release you. As I understand it, there's two ways to get out of jail. You can be released. You can have the authorities say, you're done. and Open up the thing and give you your keys back and and you walk out. The other way is to break out. Shawshank Redemption. Climb through the pipes. Work your way through the wall. You can eat your way out. You can find some breakout way. You have your wife bake a cake with a file in it. And then you can work your way out of jail. You can break out of jail. But if you break out, are you really free? You may not be in the room anymore. It may not feel like jail anymore. But are you really free? Aren't you still constantly living with a great deal of fear, anxiety, anger, injustice, whatever it may be? You're not free. You may be loose, <laughs> but you're not free. Do you understand that what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's, got, he's got authority to forgive you. You spend a lot of time trying to break out, to not feel sinful, to not feel guilty, to not feel. That's not the right way to go. What you need instead is somebody with authority to open up the cell and say, free. That's what Jesus does, that he has the authority to forgive. He has the authority to release. He has the authority to free you. Because He is God. He can forgive. And having that authority, see the love of this God in the way that He marries His authority and love. He doesn't just say to the guy, all right, you're done. Get out of here. I've not been released from jail before. But I have to imagine that in general, when they open that thing up, they're like, all right, get out of here. I don't know that you form some deep and loving bond with your jailer. In general, they're just like, yeah, get out of here. I don't know. This is the next thing. I cross it off the list. But Jesus doesn't look to this guy and say, get out of here. He looks at him and says, take heart. My son, your sins are forgiven. He is not just an authoritative mechanism that can forgive your sin. He is love. He has forgiven you in order to reunite you to Himself. That's why He uses language that is intimate, it's relational language. He doesn't just care about your legal standing. He also cares about your heart. Take heart. My son, your sins are forgiven. Gong resonation, I'm hoping. Do you feel it a little bit? This is what you have to see. This is where you have to go to have your heart start to melt. Can you imagine the other gods in the religions that you've read about having this kind of both authority and compassion? Can you imagine the God that you picture from the Old Testament meeting you with this kind of love and compassion? The Old Testament God, Hebrews references the time of Moses and God kind of 
appearing to the people on Mount Sinai, and only Moses is the one to go up, and the rest of the people fear, and they say, they're afraid because you have not come to what may be touched. We're talking about something holy. We're talking about a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. We're talking about a storm, the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. We're talking about God, holy God. That level of distance, that level of fear on our part as those who have broken the law of that holy God. And he's saying to you, take heart. My child, Technon, your sins are forgiven. Oh, you got to feel it. You got to see it. He does it time and again. We've seen that already, and he's about to do it again. It says in Matthew 9, Jesus passed on from there and saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he says to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed Jesus. And, as, uh, and Jesus reclined at table in the house, Matthew's house. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Love, authority, command, come and follow me. Love, and I'm going to eat with you. <laughs> What's his great command? His great command is to be with me, to experience my love, to be back in relationship with the God who can actually be your stability, your satisfaction. It's exactly what he gives him. They go and they eat together. This, this is the kind of calling that you should be looking for, a clear, loving, forgiving calling. Now, this, this brings up what Matthew now again brings up. There's a healing that takes place and forgiveness, and immediately people around the room go, blasphemy. There's a, a healing that goes on. It's not a physical healing, but there is an um, emotional, relational healing that goes on. As Matthew, the outcast, Matthew, the tax collector, is received back. There's a healing that goes on. And what does the people around say? When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, we've got to deal with this piece of it now. We've got to deal with our reaction to it. If we talk about the gong resonation that took, should take place in your heart, that it should take place because you understand what he's come to do for you, the love and the forgiveness that he's come to give you. But I think you also need to address the fact that you put a speed bump on that road. You stop yourself from experiencing that love because you, don't kind, of, you kind of don't want it. The scribes and the Pharisees, they kind of don't want it. Why? Okay, well, first, you need to see what they saw. They saw Jesus love a tax collector. We've talked about this many times. Maybe you've heard this before. Tax collectors are bad guys in the New Testament for a reason. In general, if people work for the IRS, they're not generally like your favorite people. I mean, they may be lovely, but if somebody just comes along and you're standing by each other at the soda fountain and they say, I work for the IRS, you're going to then back away. Certainly not going to tell them more about, you know, your financial situation. You're going to tell them less because they've come representing the government to take stuff away from you. That's generally not a popular position. And the necessary, sure, 
but not popular as a job calling, right? Well, in the New Testament, it was even further. Because instead of just being the people to take away your money, they were Jews who now worked for the conquering Romans. They bypassed that barrier of clean and unclean in order to work for the conqueror and take money from their people and give it to those that conquered them. Catholic scholar by the name of John Donahue says of this, These people were Jews who had made themselves as Gentiles, best understood under the modern image of Quisling. Now, I don't know how you can say best understood if this is the first time we've ever read that word. You know, <laughs> if you use that word, maybe that's helpful, but he goes on. That is, people who enter the service of a foreign oppressor and thus add treason to the bitterness of foreign domination. Do you get it a little bit? He's not a good guy, Matthew. And yet, when Jesus shows love to him, the reaction of those that are watching D.A. Carson, commentator on this passage, says expecting the Pharisees are expecting a Messiah who would crush the sinful and support the righteous. They had little place for a Messiah who accepted and transformed the sinner and dismissed the righteous as hypocrites. Yeah. Now, you are going to do the opposite of what they did. Original readers would be like, Pharisees are pretty good guys, and these tax collectors I hate. So now this is going to be difficult for me to switch their places and see the tax collector is the good guy and the Pharisee is the bad guy. That's going to take a second. You have the opposite problem of reading this, having already read the back of the book. You know that the forgiven are the good guys and the righteous are the hypocrites. Okay. But you have this passage because, let me tell you, part of the volume reduction in your life is the hypocrisy in your life. That you do have the same desire of the Pharisee. You don't want to be Matthew. The humility that is required to say, I'm wrong, you're right, please forgive me, is a difficult humility. In fact, many of us reject it for something else. Here's a a way of thinking about it. Imagine that you got into the most impressive college. Most of us just went to a college. (laughs) Maybe it was just sort of like a college, you know, like it wasn't really even a building. It was just a website, you know, but whatever, you got your degree and well done. But I'm saying, imagine you got into like an impressive college, one that if you ever get into, then the whole rest of your life is just golden walkways because everybody will give you a job and they'll pay you more. How do you want to get into that college in this fantasy that you're having? Do you imagine yourself as the quarterback? And you march around campus and everybody's so impressed with your your prowess athletically. And the school says, you will bring so much glory to our school that we will give you admission for free. And you get to walk around like a hero. That'd be pretty cool. Do you imagine yourself as so brilliant that the school says... We are convinced you're going to change the world so thoroughly that we just want to put our name on your name. You will bring so much glory that we just want a little cut of it. And so valuable will that be to our institution that we will give you a free ride. That's probably less cool than the quarterback, but it would still be cool, right, to be that, you know, say brilliant, nerdy, you know, that impressive academically. You probably don't write the story that you had bad grades. 
that you're not gifted athletically. In fact, you've got a bit of a criminal record. But you got in. How? Well, my dad owns the college. <laughs> and you would have to walk around and see all these other people who got in because of, you know, their achievements. And how are you here? How did you even get in? Well, that's <laughs> my last name. My dad owns the college. Really? Do you start to see what I'm saying? The appeal of the Pharisee is pride. You did it. The bitterness of forgiveness is grace. Said this way by a guy summarizing Francis Schaeffer, which if you ever read Francis Schaeffer, wow, you know, it's probably better to read somebody that summarizes Francis Schaeffer. He's just hard to read. But it says, the philosopher and theologian Francis Schaeffer, never tired of saying that Christianity is both the easiest and the hardest religion. His reasoning was that it's the easiest because we don't have to do anything to contribute to our salvation. We need only come with empty hands and a repentant heart to receive the free gift of God's forgiveness and love. It is the hardest because we are proud and we do not want to be indebted to anyone, not even God. Do you see? Do you start to get it? Here's the thing. We, we want to be the knight that conquers the dragon. We want to take the princess home and, and be impressive. Jesus puts you and all of us in the role, not of the knight, but of the tax collector, the sinner, the paralytic. Is that what you want to be? If you can admit this, then you can see why you try to mute Christianity all the time. If you try, you'll succeed. You try to mute Christianity all the time. You try not to have this resonate through you in an electric love that makes you cross mountains to try and bring other people to know this Christ. Do you see? Matthew wants you to see. Jesus wants you to see. That's why he says he didn't come for the healthy and I don't know if he did it scare quotes. I don't know if he did like a big roll of the eyes when he said it. But if you read the text well, you know that that's what he's implying. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. It's to the sick that he says, take heart, my child. Your sins are forgiven. Don't you want that? Oh, I pray that you do. Listen, if you're investigating Christianity, that's the pitch he came to live and die so that your sin could be put on him and his righteousness could be put on you. You can now receive from him that offer to have your sins forgiven and to be put back into relationship with God. That's what we're offering. Don't you want that? Would you like that? The thousand reasons not, let me help you, please. But if you are a believer, if you're somebody who's already said, that's me, can I ask you, do you really get this? Do you understand why Jesus would say to you that he desires mercy and not sacrifice? Can you have the, the boldness to embrace, to, to see for a second some of the painful emotions that you have and to start asking some questions about where they're coming from? Can you go to this Jesus on your knees rather than on your feet, on your knees, and have him pick you up? 
man, if you will, then you can become pretty useful, actually. Don't forget that this tax collector we're reading about, his name is Matthew, meaning the gospel according to Matthew, the guy that wrote this gospel. See, if you will, come to him as you should. Receive the forgiveness that you should. Praise him with the volume that you should. Then all of a sudden, you actually become pretty useful. You actually become someone who can speak that same grace, who can live with that same joy and entice somebody else to experience that same thing. So what's the takeaway from this? The takeaway is to actually embrace the gospel. But if you do, to then speak it. Here's your little practical thing to do from this sermon. Take a piece of paper today or your note on your phone, yada, yada, and write out three names of people you want to know Jesus. As far as you know, I mean, you, you know, this is ignorance, not judgment. As far as you know, they don't know Jesus. Write their names down. Commit every day this week to pray for those people, but pray in a very specific way. On that day, write out three or four sentences that is your prayer for that person. What you want them to know about this Jesus that you serve. And I think if you do that, it'll help warm your heart to how good this God is and help catch just a a hint, just a small vision of all the other people who need to know Him too. Will you do that? I pray that you would. Let's pray now. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we want to be the hero. Because we're proud, but also because it's really cool. And yet, we've already been exempted from that role, Father. We've already broken your law. The only way for us forward, Lord, is to go to you, to be forgiven by you, to be reunited to you, and receive the meaning, receive the calling, receive the grace to be your child, to be forgiven by the only one who can really forgive us. Father, if we will, then all of a sudden we actually can be useful. We may not be what the whole story is about, but we can be a squire to the night. We actually can be helpful, like Matthew, Lord. I pray that you would give us the grace to think that way this week, and that as your Holy Spirit is moving through this room, that you would give us the grace to respond well to what you're doing for your glory and our good. I pray these things in your Son's holy name. Amen.